Thank you very much. I hope this is the first of many. Hey, I have a feeling. I have a feeling in my bones. I have a feeling in my bones. Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup, episode 131. This is where we round up the most important tech, digital, and innovation highlights from across the African continent. My name is Andy Lemasugu. Thank you for listening in. You can look forward to a smashing show today because we have three juicy topics lined up for you. We'll be highlighting some of the more notable happenings to occur in the world of digital money since we unpacked the pros and pitfalls of Facebook and Co.'s bid to reimagine global finance. Then we'll be discussing Africa's growing motorcycle ride-sharing trend. Yes, it's quite a thing. What kind of thing is it, though? That's what we want to find out today. We aim to soberly determine how bullish we all should be about the trend towards the quote-unquote Uberization of the motorcycle taxi industry in various key African geographies. And finally, we'll be reflecting on the future of artificial intelligence right here on the African continent, separating hype from reality and trying to work out what we should all be either excited about and or actively plugged into with regards to all that. So yes, it is a jam-packed show. Welcome to it. I'm so pleased to have joining me for this discussion two of the most eclectic tech ecosystem dudes I'm privileged to know and call friends. First up, it's none other than the Zimbabwean homie and returning friend of the show, Babu Signoni, who's joining us via Skype from Amsterdam in the Netherlands. How's it, bruv? Hi. Good. How you doing, Andile? Hey, chilling, bruv. Good. I'm, I'm all the better for having you on the show, man. Always a pleasure to be here, man. Indeed. And is it rainy or super hot? Because that's pretty much Europe right now. One of those two. <laughs> it's super rainy right now. Oh, you poor thing. <laughs> We're having an amazing day in Joburg. Of Just course. had to rub, you, rub your face in it a bit. <laughs> so welcome. Thanks for being here, man. Thank you, Andile. All right. Now, so we also have the very Nigerian and the very analytical Osa Rumen Osamui. He's on the line from Kigali, Rwanda. Ataguan, bro. How's it going, man? Chillos, chillos. Listen, I haven't introduced you guys properly. I think to do that, I'm going to dive into y'all's LinkedIn. With or without your permission, it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. So I'm going LinkedIn diving. Uh, let's see what we have here. Babu Signoni says here, design strategist, innovator, TEDx and Oxford speaker. Mm-hmm. Flex, bro. Uh, <laughs> live experience includes UX designer at booking.com. Two years of that? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Pretty much what? Working in product development, marketing. What does that involve? Uh, it involves um, building a culture of loyalty with Booking.com customers and ensuring a closer link to the brand. Does that have anything to do with your passion for AI and your practitionership in that space? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Which brings me to the next thing you do. Innovation consultant for UNHCR Innovation. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely had to do with your your passion for and your work in the, the AI space, yeah? Yes, yes, it did. Okay, so explain. What, what do you do for them? So we, we linked up in early 2017 on the back of my TEDx talk uh, in which I spoke about the use of artificial intelligence to predict sub-Saharan Africa's next um, refugee crisis. And we've been working together since then on a variety of topics, mostly um, hinged around 
innovation, sustainable innovation and how we can make artificial intelligence something that is accessible to the people who benefit from it. So we've, we've been working on a, a pilot project in Somalia called Jetson, which aims to use predictive analytics to basically foretell the movements of refugees in between refugee camps. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm sure I'm sort of betraying why one of our topics today has to do with AI. It's because you're here and we're taking full advantage of your presence here. Prior <laughs> to all of this, you're, of course, a senior UX designer at Thomson Reuters. Before that, you were a creative group head hitting up digital for MNC Saatchi Abel in Cape Town, only yeah. one of the top five agencies in, in, in South Africa. And <laughs> and what's phenomenal about you, fantastic, quirky, call it what you will, self-taught everything, yeah. um, which is just fantastic. So for those of you who haven't heard Babusi's story, you know, we've got past episodes where he shares more deeply on on his approach to basically shaping his own version of quote-unquote career. So we yeah. won't go into that. We will share in our show notes links to previous times Babusi's been on the show. Without any further ado, Osaruma and Osamui, diving into your LinkedIn, entrepreneur in residence at Africa's Talking. That's been, yep. what, for the last eight months? Yeah, for the last eight months. I just wonder what the everyday for someone with that title gets to do or spend their time doing. Um, so typically an entrepreneur in residence uh, is uh, someone who's, who's gained some experience in a sector um, and is brought on within a larger organization to like work on stuff, experiment, uh, build companies, whatever. It varies from case to case. In my case, um, I, my title is EIR because we couldn't quite figure out where I would fit within the organization. We just agreed that I needed to join. And so day to day, I do lots of different things. I started out working within AT Labs, which is Africa's Talking's R&D lab slash startup studio. Now I'm embedded within the international expansion team, mostly doing like market insights, um, supporting the executive team on, you know, uh, strategic decision making etc and do some work with hr like i work pretty much across the organization across departments uh and i guess entrepreneur in residence is uh, is just vague enough for me to to get on with my life for people who don't know what africa's talking does fill us in um, so Africa's Talking uh, at the moment is a communications platform as a service. Some people might think of it as a Twilio for Africa. So basically, if you need to um, consume SMS, USSD, voice, a couple other products, the cost of doing so market by market is often too high for uh, lots of the businesses that need to consume these services. And what Africa's Talking does is basically go into all these markets ahead of our customers, do all the groundwork needed to deliver these services and allow any company integrate with us once and send messages across all the markets or deliver these services, communicate with their users across all the markets we're live. And of course, I follow your work for a platform called The Subtext. You're author and of course, founder for that platform. This is where you share a lot of your ongoing sort of grappling with some of the bigger trends you observe in Africa's tech ecosystem, correct? Uh, yes. So um, yeah. the subtext is me uh, documenting my education. Uh, one of the things that I've been most focused on in the past few years has been uh, figuring out the logic of adoption or basically what matters when it comes when you think about technology in Africa. We have a model for doing this uh, or for thinking about this for 
pretty much most of the world, but it seems to me like we have not yet worked out a model of success uh, and failure. And that's been like the grand project uh, that I paid the most attention to in the past uh, two or so years. And the subtext is a way for me to, from time to time, share my thinking um, and share my mental models about thinking about these industries um, or these countries and then allowing my audience to form their own conclusions based on the things I've laid out. Links to the subtext and more specifically some of the work we'll be referencing a little later on all in our resource well. I suppose your time at Big Cabal Media as uh, one of the editors at Tech Cabal would would serve you well in your current subtext um, exploits. You're also currently a mentor for Google's Launchpad Accelerator for Africa. There I mostly speak to, learn from, uh, support the startups that Google uh, accepts into the accelerator. And no doubt leveraging uh, what you did before that, 12 months at Ventures Platform, one of Nigeria's more, I suppose, well-known, homegrown VC outfits, working in investment and research, um, as well as ecosystems and research before that. Listen, I told you earlier, like we brought together two very eclectic guests and I can't wait to chop it up with them. I just thought I'd ask you two, what do you think all three of us have in common? That's not apparent when you visit our LinkedIn profiles. What do you guys think? Um, I sense that we all have uh, a certain curiosity about the world. I, I, I know that, you know, from speaking directly with you and Dele, and Babusi from observing his work uh, at a distance. Babusi, what's your guess? Uh, I would guess we are working on things that are focused on the African continent. So you're both right. However, the one thing I have in mind is the fact that we're all into music in one uh, way, <laughs> shape, or form. So I'm classically trained as a singer. Babusi literally just played like what your first mainstream DJ said, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Uh, (laughs) And then, of course, Osaruman, you're a music producer. You score films and things. Yeah, uh, I'm a film score composer, synth programmer, sound designer. And I was doing that very, very long before I got into the tech industry. Um, So that has, if you were to plot my life on like a timeline, that's taking up a much larger chunk than technology has. Wow. And Babusi, how did you get into DJing? I like this one particular South African music genre called Gom, and I've been uh, a curator of the genre ever since it burst onto the scene. So DJing is just something that allows me to express this curation. And I've been fortunate enough um, to find people in Amsterdam who just want me to play. That's incredible. So we'll also talk about the unlikely link between that and your love for and work in artificial intelligence, but that'll come later. (laughs) 100% looking forward to it. Yeah, man. So listen, before we jump into our discussions for our promo segment, we're going to play a little game called What's Trending? And I'm going to play it with both of you. I'll factor in as well. That's because you guys are beasting at the moment. Beasting. Allow me to demonstrate. But we'll see. (laughs) On a world tour, you're calling it AI for Africa Tour 2019. It's yeah. taken you to Paris, Geneva, so far, um, yeah. to Kenya. Um, yeah. South Africa is lined up for, what, later this month? Yeah, um, and California as well. California's coming. Thereafter. Zimbabwe, you're going to touch base with the homeland. Is that confirmed? <sighs> Not yet. You know how it goes. But okay, we're going to pray for our homeland because they need you, yeah. bro. Um, yeah, I know. This is crazy. And of course, we're proud to be huge fans of this tour and we can't stop telling everybody to look out for it and so there'll be details in our resource well about 
where you can plug in to the phenom that is by Busignoni and <laughs> the good word he's spreading about AI and its relevance for the African continent. Yeah. All right. Also, Ruman, you're up next, sir. Beasting. Yes. You have a town hall coming up. Uh, yes, I'm speaking at the Tech Ball Mobility Town Hall event, um, September 27, 2019 in Lagos. Uh, I organized a subtext sessions event in Nairobi, focused on mobility, and I guess this is an excuse to take it back home to Nigeria. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We'll be sharing all the deets in our resource well. Be sure to check it out. You would be crazy to miss out on meeting Osaruman in person. The good folks at Tech Cabal, of course, always great at curating a room of like-minded individuals and uh, people just working on smart things. Uh, great conversation is assured. So you do not want to miss that, Lagos. Don't sleep on this. So my turn, a live fireside chat as part of an investment tour to Zimbabwe. Hashtag ZIT2019, standing for Zimbabwe Investment Tour 2019. As part of that tour, which is a fairly high-end affair, which I know, you know, not everybody's going to be a part of, but here's something you can be a part of, especially if you're in Johannesburg on the 3rd of September, 2019. At quarter past four in the afternoon, we have Dr. Shingi Munyeza and South Africa's Alan Reyes in conversation, a pragmatic fireside chat about accelerating Zimbabwean entrepreneurial ventures. I'll be co-hosting that live panel at LeaderX at Santon Convention Center with the Zimbabwean homie Smanga Madabuta of African Investment Tours. And so Dr. Shingi Munyeza is easily one of Zimbabwe's most prolific serial entrepreneurs. Alan Reyes, also very well known in these streets uh, for accelerating, incubating, and I suppose capitalizing businesses. Both of them had that in common. And now they're in business together, doing what they do best and focusing on Zimbabwe. Um, again, all the details will be in the show notes. Yeah, guys, promo done. Let's get to business. Let's start with the world post Facebook's Libra announcement. I have to say, the episode we taped covering this issue last month is now officially the highest rated episode we have ever published. So that just speaks to just the nerve this yeah. entire announcement hit. And of course, perhaps some of the issues we raised, some of those issues clearly resonating with all of you. Also, Ruman, first, perhaps, what's your sense of the world post Facebook and Co's Libra announcement. The way I think about Libra uh, or the Libra announcement specifically is that Facebook is generally viewed with a healthy dose of skepticism. Um, and so you've seen governments, you know, react, try to shake their fists at Facebook saying, you know, stop development, uh, ETC. You've seen uh, analysts or commentators on Twitter um, raising some concerns about government's ability to control, you know, their monetary policy if you have a world where there's a global currency, ETC. And, you know, from the local startup ecosystem, so people who I've spoken to, I've seen lots of optimism, actually. So one of the questions that I had in mind when I heard the announcement was, in Africa specifically, what would be the on and off ramps for users to convert Libra to their local currencies and vice versa? So I've spoken to a few crypto exchanges, a few payments processors, and everybody seems excited to be a part of that process. And so it's a mix of skepticism and optimism, I guess. Babusi, I reckon this partnership between Flutterwave, you know, one of the darlings of Nigeria's fintech scene, and Alipay, 
Alibaba's uh, subsidiary, of course. Um, I think the partnership in payments between those two, to me, stands out as one of the more significant things to be announced post the whole Libra thing. Yeah, for me, definitely, it's, you know, this partnership kind of signals where the world is going in its perception of Africa as a potential um, revenue base when it comes to the nature of the transactions that will drive that kind of revenue. And it's mostly like these peer-to-peer or really small transactions that looking at the numbers on the continent will actually um, start to compete with more like middle income um, purchases for things that cost a little more than just, you know, people buying airtime or or buying electricity credits on the African continent. Mm. So it, it just made me think about the value of Africa's very wide population base and especially so economically when we look at how many people are just like on the brink of middle income uh, almost across the region and that's where the money actually is. And then some selling the whole Flutterwave Alipay partnership as Africa's entree into the Chinese market and vice versa. What do you think, Osiruman? <laughs> Um, I think is that overselling it? Yeah, I, 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 I think I think it's overselling it a little bit. <laughs> I think it's overselling it a little bit. One way to look at it is that there's existing trade happening between African merchants um, and Chinese ones. There's existing trade happening, and this is one way to make that to facilitate that, make it easier. But I don't know that I would frame this as granting access to a billion uh, active users. Like you know, I think that's. Uh, PR speak. Uh, and what we'll see, you're going, yeah, nah, why? Yeah, I second, I second um, uh, those sentiments exactly. And also, you know, the, the traffic it is not really a two-way street. We will have consumption on the one end um, that will definitely overweigh um, the other end. So to pitch it as something that will benefit both parties equally and, and is more of a partnership than anything else is, it's a little false. It's a little... I will say disingenuous, um, maybe if very disingenuous, to be honest, um, it's not even optimistic. You know, it's very apparent that this is a narrative that has to be spun in a certain way so as to not alarm the people. But I think there's a cause for alarm. Okay, well, let's talk MTN, guys. They're kickstarting mobile money in Nigeria. How excited should we be? Is this the Finally. next Safaricom situation? Um, a few weeks ago, I was looking at a. Uh, MTN's uh, revenue breakdown uh, from mm. 2006 till 2017. And we can see on an absolute basis, voice revenues started to play to around, I think, 2011, 2012. And from there, what they termed other value, um, as well as digital value and data value, started to take up an increasing portion of MTN's revenue. So strategically speaking, this seems to me like revenue diversification, that MTN's primary interests in becoming a quote-unquote bank um, are to diversify its revenues in a world where voice, the value of voice is either declining or stagnating. At the same time, there's lots of things that a vibrant telco-led mobile money ecosystem does to digital adoption on the continent. So while I'm Nigerian, I live in Nairobi. And, you know, even though it's cli- it's, it sounds cliche, but M-Pesa has really made a significant difference because I've seen, you know, the average person on the street think about their mobile phone as more than a communications device. It's been thought of in some ways as uh, a way to move forward in whatever user flow, a way to advance 
um, or a way to get things done. And that does something for, you know, the adoption of consumer of consumer technology. And so given what, what we know about MTN's execution capabilities, given what we know about what they've done in, say, Ghana, for example, I, for one, am really excited to see that they are finally taking concrete steps in this direction or they've finally been allowed to take concrete steps in this direction. I like that you cite the fact this wouldn't be happening if they hadn't secured a financial services license from regulators. Yeah. Which is big. And I suppose when we consider this whole trend, whether we're talking Flatwave and Alipay, Libra, MTN, and how it may or may not be on its way to uh, uh, an Impesa play a la Safaricom in Nigeria, like I suppose the big elephant in the room whenever these things are being discussed is there are things regulators in every African geography will or will not allow for whatever reason. Yes. Given the visceral feedback Libra has received, by and large, in Europe and America, am I right in seeing the imminent launch of WhatsApp payments in India later this year as essentially their hack for working around Facebook's branding problem in the world? I'll speak to my limited knowledge on on the topic, but what I'm sure of is that the WhatsApp payments feature was something that had been tabled quite a long time before um, talk of Libra and everything. So I think before cryptocurrency gained a foothold in the way we look at transactions, WhatsApp was already considering having some kind of peer-to-peer payments or, or lending, even trialed it in some markets. So I, I think maybe pushing that to the fore is their way of circumventing their PR issues. But I, I would hazard to say that it's something that has been definitely in the pipeline for WhatsApp for quite a while now. But also, Ruben, what's the difference? Uh, uh, Libra versus what Facebook is proposing indirectly through you know, WhatsApp payments. Am I right in seeing this as a hack? for I think, turning Facebook into, uh, a, into echo, a bank? Facebook and co, that is? I think the right lens to, to view this through is through Facebook's revenue mix. So uh, Facebook, much like pretty much every other social media platform, um, you know, they report global user bases. So Facebook, for example, I think they're now at 2.5 billion monthly active users. But if you look at the monetization side, pretty much uh, all the revenue comes from um, North America and Europe. You know, this is true for Facebook, it's true for, for Snap, you know, based on all the earnings reports I've read. And so if you try to answer the question, how does Facebook make money in a world where both the consumer and the advertiser side of the equation in more developing countries um, are not as robust yet, they're still loss making in those markets. Facilitating value transfer seems like you know, one of the more obvious solutions, facilitating commerce and value transfer. Mm. And so that, that's the lens through which I view that specifically. Um, like Babusi said, we've been hearing rumors about WhatsApp payments for years, especially since Facebook turned off the monetization tab after the acquisition. You know, WhatsApp used to charge, I think, a dollar a year or something. Oh, yeah. Which like, yeah. doesn't make any sense if you're, if you juxtapose it against, you know, becoming the payments rails for uh, some of the more vibrant developing economies like India. That's the lens through which I would view WhatsApp payments. It's like there is value already being transferred. There is a user base that's already on WhatsApp. Therefore, facilitating that allows Facebook to like basically take a tax or skim off the top gotcha. and create value for itself in these markets. Yeah, and let's face it, this is not exactly an original concept when you consider WeChat's you know success in China. Yeah. Yeah. So guys, the Kenyan-based uh, DPO has acquired South Africa's Payfast in what's been reported as a multi-million rand deal. We're not being told exactly how much they've paid for this company 
it's being billed as the largest payments transaction to take place in South Africa to date. It comes in the wake of, again, the Libra announcement. It's probably a deal that was in the works before that. But what do you guys think consolidation in the payments gateway space says about how people who are outside of this Libra and Co situation might be thinking to secure their positions in a world that might go to a few big players who control the vast majority of transactions being done digitally in the world. I'll speak as a user experience designer. And what I've noticed with payments is the players who understand the markets in which they operate best are the ones who succeed. So uh, looking at MTN, for example, finally coming into the game, of course, um, only on the back of uh, actual regulations allowing them to do so in Nigeria. I mean, you know, that's something that is is almost organic in a sense because of their understanding of what will be their future customer base. And DPO's um, acquisition of PayFast, and also I only found this out recently that they'd recently merged with PayGate, which was another uh, major payment gateway. I think they will have enough of a foothold to be able to hold their ground when the Libra um, avalanche comes rushing through across the continent, as long as they understand the market in which they want to operate in and they know how to handle payments therein. My view on this is more upstream. So I view consolidation, you know, especially across African countries as time expansion. That is market by market. Uh, it's not yet clear that, you know, companies are, have been able to build very, very large businesses within one market. Um, and one way to create value is then, as opposed to expanding in terms of depth, now expanding in terms of reach or breadth. And hopefully, you know, the addition of all these markets and the expertise that comes with that then makes the, the entities much more valuable. I mean, to that point, Payfast only has about 55,000 e-commerce merchants signed up. Uh, this deal now puts DPO in position to serve what they're claiming as over 100,000 merchants across 18 African markets. If you're sitting somewhere in the global north, I don't care, Silicon Valley, London, Tel Aviv, and you hear numbers like that, you're like, is that even a thing? <laughs> That's definitely something that we've seen uh, you know, across the continent. Most of the marquee or most popular companies really have like a couple hundred thousand users, mm. even on the consumer side. I guess juxtaposed against more global numbers, those numbers seem tiny, um, but that's a reflection of like how much more headroom there is to grow. To be honest, it kind of reminds me just how strong a position Facebook and their pals are in. When you think yeah. Facebook, Naspers, Visa, Uber, it's slightly disheartening, almost worrying. For me, almost difficult to imagine how they won't dominate. Why do you think it's disheartening? Um, Facebook, like any major company in the world that holds a quasi-monopolistic position in any market, needs to have competition. And right now, as a digital consumer, I really don't feel I'm safe out there. And I don't know that a world dominated by Libra, as far as sort of digital transactions as concerns makes me any safer or less prone to being taken advantage of. Fair. That concern uh, sounds valid or is valid, but the reason why Facebook has attained the scale that it has, you know, and this is true for many other internet-based services, is that they have 
pretty much provided the best product or the product that has best done the job it was it's hired for. And so if you compare a Facebook, which is big because you know users actually do like it, like and they find you valuable, same with WhatsApp, same with Uber ETC, as opposed to the kinds of services in the past which gained market power by acquiring supply. I think those are two different things. And the idea that these monopolies are inherently bad or dominance in this sense is inherently bad, I don't quite agree with. Um, I think in addition to competition, there's regulators do have a part to play here. That is for defining the frameworks um, in which uh, or through which these companies deliver these services. I think that's that's how I would I would approach consumer protection. But I don't think it's necessary for us to have uh, an alternative to Facebook or a local alternative to Facebook, which is one of the things I'm sensing from your from your. So side. I think you're right. I do tend to conflate the idea of effective monopoly with what worries me most, which is essentially how they carry themselves as a corporate and. I suppose those two things aren't necessarily related. I've never been team Facebook should not exist. I think the utility they provide me and, you know, hundreds of millions of others speaks for itself. I do think the implications of them and other sort of corporates with problematic tendencies being in the position to control global finance is what worries me. And I suppose... It's not the fact that they're the biggest at, at what they do necessarily. I see what yeah. You. So I mean, look, I, I just think it's helpful to grapple with some of the more pragmatic implications of what could or would if they win at this or don't. Yeah. And I also picked up from your response, also, Ruman, that some of those pragmatic statements might be what you would advise founders in this space who might be despairing or forgetting that. There are legitimate ways to develop businesses and business advantages, even when they are dominant players in the in the market. The way I see it, uh, we should deal with the world as we as we find it, not as we would like it to yeah. be. I, I like to start my analysis from the point where I've assumed that as far as social networking or messaging goes, you are not going to build an effective competitor to Facebook or any of their services. And, and so I think, you know, one thing to think about is like what opportunities are you know, the global internet companies structurally unable to pursue. Um, and like those are the, the white spaces that uh, I would expect local entrepreneurs to to pursue. And Babu, see, I'm not going to ask you to speak on behalf of Booking.com because I know you're not here to do that. <laughs> but you, yeah. you do work for one of, for a business that is perceived by many as a juggernaut in its space. But I do imagine that even um, yeah. holding that advantage in the world in the context of Google and Airbnb and Facebook and Uber or even mobile telcos and what they may or may not decide to be tomorrow makes it quite an interesting place to, to ply your trade. Definitely. But I, I think booking might be a little unique in the sense that they do actually invest in what might be their future competition. And also um, Google still remains, you know, the jargon that it is. And even in the accommodation space, it would be, uh, an entity that we would even list as our biggest competitor, for example. So it's always interesting to um, to ply your trade in capitalist circles. Um, <laughs> it always gets a little murky, <laughs> but it is what it is. Yeah, man. Well, listen, folks, let's move on. Also, Ruman, I'm taking full advantage of your presence here to dive into a trend that I know you've written about. And I find it most curious that 
you very humbly admitted that um, when you were in the position to to back the trend as a VC practitioner, you kind of missed the opportunity, like you or you saw it and you just decided it wasn't worth your time and attention. So we're going to reference a piece you wrote for the subtext where you basically right. unpack your sense of the state of play within what is called Okada's in West Africa, Motos in most of East Africa, and um, in most of Southern Africa, a dynamic that's mostly illegal as a way of public transport, this idea of motorcycles as a taxi, and now a layer on top of that, tech being deployed in a sort of Uberization context to, I presume, capture value, organize, reorganize, an industry that um, is the lifeblood for how people get around for a lot of people on the continent. I, I was not expecting you to bring that up, uh, you know, the investment bit. So, <laughs> <laughs> listen, I wouldn't have if you had told me that privately. But I mean, you put it out there. Yes, I did. Uh, it's fine. Um, so, you know, one of the players, the motorcycle taxi players in Nigeria. Um, while I worked at Ventures Platform, we had the opportunity to uh, make an investment um, at the time. I, I looked at it and said, okay, so there's existing motorcycle taxis in, you know, in the more residential, more rural areas. Right now, they're being hailed by people coming outside, you know, whatever, whatever buildings they're in and hailing them on the streets and getting to where they want to go. They are being used primarily for short trips, trips that are maybe under three to five minutes within, say, one or two kilometers. And so I then thought about what's the value proposition of a mobile app that says, okay, so you should hail this service by, the, by your phone and then come downstairs when it's there. I think the most important question when it comes to mobility is liquidity. That is, when a user wants to hail or wants to move from point A to point B, how quickly do they find a mode of transportation to take them there? And it didn't seem to me at the time that these motorcycle hailing services used by an app specifically were able to deliver on that value proposition, especially because, you know, the trips that they were being used for were so short. So it doesn't make sense to wait five minutes for a driver to come if you want to undergo a three to five minute trip. Um, and so I saw, I saw it as a very, very niche product. I couldn't quite work out, you know, how large it grew. But over time, you know, in the months after we, we passed on that investment, I started to see more and more of these riders on the streets and I started to see more and more usage. And the article that I wrote was really, you know, the culmination of about uh, six to eight months of asking, oh, what did I miss? So people have read the article and thought that I'm now a convert and super bullish on the space. Um, I, I am not, I'm still quite skeptical. But what I was trying to do was to develop a more robust model for thinking about, so what's actually happening here? And one, one important thing that, that helped spark this set of insights was moving to East Africa, or effectively moving to East Africa, where I saw that services like Safe Border, like Uber Border, like Taxify or Bolt, they were running motorcycle taxi services effectively. And so culturally, the landscape seemed very different. And, you know, lots of the article was produced by me juxtaposing, you know, those two. Um, in East Africa, for example, the, the business model is pretty straightforward, like Uber for motorcycles, uh, because the use cases are different. In West Africa, the business model is more supply driven. So you have these services, they buy the motorcycles and then they lease them to the drivers and tell the drivers to go find customers and then pay them periodically. And so those two business models reflect the different uh, cultural assumptions, you know, market by market. 
uh, and they also give us different ideas about how this plays out continent-wide in the long term. In front of me is this list that Digest Africa has compiled of Africa's 10 most funded transport and logistics startups. What would you guys guess, out of 10, what would you guess the representation of sort of motorcycle-related either logistics or transport startups featured on that list would be? I would say six uh, or seven. Six or seven. What do you reckon, Osorman? Uh I'd say I'd say four or five. Okay. So you're closer to it, Osorman. This is a significant trend. I just, I suppose my question after sort of referencing that is, to what extent does funds raised speak to actual business opportunity versus, say, a bullish trend being backed by VCs who might even secretly know that this isn't an opportunity past sort of giving them a vehicle to capture value in subsequent rounds. Mm. I, I tweeted a while ago that the most interesting, the most interesting sectors to analyze are those where you can't neatly transfer or convert cash into dominance. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that motorcycle hailing is is one of them. I think that there are limited opportunities for these players to differentiate themselves within a market. And so the returns to scale are massive. Uh, and so, I mean, just like Uber, the more money that one is able to deploy to build out the network, the more dominance you're likely to sustain market by market. And so I think there is a, there's likely going to be a loose correlation between, you know, the war chest each of these players has been able to raise and their ability to capture market share. That said, one of the reasons I am I remain a little skeptical of the of the industry uh, in the very long term is that I don't know that the unit economics work out uh, or, or that they are very positive. You know, in the, so in the same way that you know maybe Loaki's capital, Chris Saka for Uber was a very very successful investment, but Uber is still a big question mark in, in terms of you know is it a successful company or has yeah. the global ride hailing space been proven to be successful? And so you know while you know as an investment back then. It would have been super interesting to make the investment in that player, which shall not be named. <laughs> um, I, 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 I still, I still don't know. I, I still don't know that this turns out to be uh, on its own a successful industry. Uh, one more, you know, data point in this direction is I think it was a, it was the CEO of Grab or Gojek that said uh, that they don't requ- they don't need their ride hailing business to be profitable. Um, you know, and they said that in the wake of Uber's IPO. Um, so basically trying to distance themselves from the, the perception of the right hailing business and trying to say, you know, we're going to lay other things on here to be interesting. Yeah. And even in the article I wrote, I said that the, you know, the playbook is pretty obvious that when anybody, they start by delivering transportation as a service, grow as quickly as the market permits them to grow. Um, then they will leverage that scale to layer on adjacent services, you know, the obvious things, identity, uh, mobile payments, ETC. You know, Safe Border has just turned on that tap. They've just enabled value transfer from one Safe Border user to another one. You know, the next step will obviously be to extend that platform to other businesses to build or create value on. And from there on, like profit, I guess, hopefully. Yeah. And so, you know, it, the sense I the sense I get from thinking about, reading about, talking to people about the space is that the right hailing business is a vehicle, um, no pun intended, it's a vehicle <laughs> to scale um, or to, to amass a user base, which they will then try to monetize in other ways. But the right the right hailing business itself, you know, is still a big question mark. And because it's so well PR'd, VCs smell like an easy win, I imagine. 
Well, you know, I, I will be more sympathetic to VCs than that. They are. I am putting your <laughs> feet to the fire. Pretty thoughtful <laughs> about this. <laughs> um, I, I think it's more. It's a lot more deeply considered than that. Um, and I think you know the backers or those who have actually put money in this space uh, do believe that the players that they've backed can parlay success in or parlay scale in the right hitting business to success elsewhere. Babu, so you've been amening as uh, also yeah, yeah, yeah. speaking. What's on your mind, man? I have a, a secret hope that one day we'll be able to have some kind of ride hailing application in Zimbabwe. But, you know, the dynamics that are required um, in terms of like the cities and the customer behaviors as well, it's just something that I don't really foresee in the horizon. So we can just watch from a distance and and be envious. Are you are you hating on Econet's ride-hailing service, which admittedly uh, doesn't look very well? <laughs> you, you could have stopped Maya. the sentence at hating on Econet, period. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, listen, I mean, uh, my question for you, within the context of what we're discussing, you've yeah. been in a position to see how business wins can be purchased, literally, by yeah. a yeah. sort of financing growth right yeah and uh, this is a big trend in the u.s right now with uh we work and and uber and even when we you know you've had to debate things like jumia i suppose the ease with which well-capitalized well-pr'd startups can basically spend on fueling growth in fairly unsustainable ways in yeah. s- strict business terms but then yeah. there are companies like airbnb and booking.com that managed to be profitable. Exactly. I think, um, especially within the context of booking, and uh, I'm, again, not speaking in an official capacity, it's interesting to watch how booking benefits from not being at the top of mind of their biggest customer base. You know, the people's relationship with booking is one that's like almost merely transactional. They only realize they use the service after one or two emails confirming a trip or transaction. Where um, if you look at what Uber and other players have to do, it's you have to really invest in creating this brand top of mindness to have this constant return behavior. And that's something that costs a lot of money, one. And also, as you said, it's not really sustainable. It's are people using the thing or not? Okay, cool. So in normal logical terms, you would then assume that there's something that needs to be done to either uh, amend that service to make it a little more approachable or applicable to the market. But what we're doing now is we're spending a whole lot of money on ensuring usage that sometimes is not profitable to ensure that in the future people have a dependency on a platform upon which to then add certain capabilities like uh, the Gojeks and the Grabs in um, Asia do with their um, food delivery and even accommodation and flights booking atop this one app. What does this mean in terms of, you know, leverage? If their e-booking is not, and again, I know you're not speaking on behalf of the company, but if booking is not primarily interested in owning the customer relationship, doesn't that place you or place the company in an interesting position vis-a-vis Google, which is, exactly if if Google decided to lean too strongly into that space, (laughs) uh, you know, what does that mean for... Funny (laughs) you should say that. Oh, oh, that for booking.com's business. Yeah, it means a lot. Um, So Google's starting now to lean into the accommodations. uh, It's it's starting to plant its roots further down the funnel. And um, it's now becoming more and more important to have this 
brand top of mindness um, before people come to a search platform. So direct traffic is starting to matter now more than ever. And it's something that unfortunately was taken for granted. You know, it's um, you never know what you have until it's gone and and that was a certain layer of the of the funnel which i won't comment on right now but yeah it's 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 turning into a very interesting game uh considering the fact that also booking is google's largest customer um that's on the public record you can just google that so we we interesting yeah we we need google for traffic but then also google's turning into our largest competitor so it's an interesting dance i'm also keen um as an employee um or at least someone affiliated with booking to to see how this turns out um but the race for brand awareness is one that's heating up in accommodations um between the two in the motor space presumably that's why we're seeing so many brands exactly and I think that's why Uber is not as concerned as one would think it would be about profitability at this point, because mm. I think this is a long game. You know, the, the more you create a dependency on your platform for certain behaviors, the more you can leverage it in the future, which is what Google's done with all these other ancillary business arms that they've, um, you know, added on to their search platforms. As long as people come to you first for X, they will probably do that for X, Y. And um, I think that's why in this rideshare market, you hear a lot about the brands. It's extremely important for you to do so. Yeah. I mean, Marquez Brownlee uh, was saying on his YouTube channel the other day, he was unboxing the the Apple card. Yeah. And at the end, he just, he said something that really sat with me, which was, heads up, everybody, just realized that in Apple's strategy, this is no doubt... Another way, they're going to make it very difficult for you to make that decision to navigate away from their ecosystem when you decide to go Android again, if you yeah. buy in to this card. Yeah. I suppose it's going to be a branded game. So, I mean, also, Ruman, my question to you then, which brands are winning? Is it a battle of the brands in the space right now? I'm not able to speak to specific players and their strengths or weaknesses. But, but what I can do is, I guess, share my opinion about what the good framework for this is. I think it's definitely a race to become a utility. That is, a race to pretty much own the customer relationship such that the first brand they think about when they want to achieve whatever thing it is, is, uh, is your platform or your service. Um, and like you, like you rightly said, Andile, um, this is why it makes sense, you know, for Uber to continue to invest billions of dollars market by market because, like, it doesn't really matter if they're able to attain the dominance, you know, that, that's projected. If they are, then they can parlay that success into, you know, food delivery. They can parlay that into insurance, like we've seen with uh, Gojek in Southeast Asia. They can begin to layer on like many other services that then make it worth it to have paid as much to retain these customers. And this is why, like I said earlier, the, the returns to scale are are massive. The players with the larger wallets to spend to build that network of both riders and drivers in the early days will tend to sustain that dominance because it is difficult for these services to provide a differentiated experience player by player. So um, I would think about, let's compare Uber versus uh, Bolt in Lagos. Like they all use the same drivers. Pretty much every rider has both apps on their phones and they switch between them, you know, depending on whichever one is closer. Um, like I was saying about liquidity early on. And so the service has been able to build and sustain a robust network of riders will then sustain the network of drivers because the drivers 
you know, we only stay online on the platforms where they are guaranteed to be utilized. And so over time, this is why, you know, I expect to see that as these players expand in terms of the services they offer to consumers, they also expand in terms of the services that they enable drivers participate in. If number of ride requests in a specific area is, say, 50, and each driver can expect to get, you know, say, one ride request every 30 minutes, there may be 20 or 30 more food delivery requests that can keep them utilized. When you have a network in which, you know, you have motorcycles or vehicles in general as nodes in that network, there's multiple things you can do to, you know, take advantage of that, provide economic opportunity for drivers who will deliver packages, deliver food, who, who might serve as, say, financial service agents, which is an interesting thing that might happen. I have no idea. Basically, creating economic opportunity for the driver's side, but on the rider's side, trying to become much more of a utility. So if I need to transfer value from myself to you, Andelia, if you, you have the app of a you know an unnamed motorcycle taxi player, because we live in the same city and we use the same transport infrastructure, I can just transfer that value to you. If you're sure that, you know, the merchant who you're going to try to cast that value out with will accept that as a payment method. So the ride hailing part of the business seems to me like, you know, uh, step one uh, as a path to scale. After which, you know, you can have these players then layer on as many services as they want to retain that utility status. Depending on how deep the market is, that's an opportunity that's worth like much more than say the transportation markets and, and it's my impression today that pretty much every player in the space intends to build that bundle is this comparable to transient's approach to growth on the african continent i, I mean no one could have guessed i imagine when when transient first launched on the continent that one they would be the dominant android uh handset player that they are today but i think further no one could have foreseen how they would leverage that advantage into creating other value? So I, I wouldn't classify Transion as the dominant Android uh, phone brand, uh, primarily because the Android ecosystem is a, I view it as a failed state. Players will begin to defect, you know, one by one. I saw yesterday that there was an announcement that the first KaiOS techno phone has been released. Yes, I saw that. So, you know, Android is gradually no longer the most strategically important platform. That said, uh, I think the, the best way to think about transition holdings is, I guess, in a similar way. They ship at least 100 million mobile phones across the continent, across their three brands, Techno, um, Infinix, and Itel, I believe. And, you know, again, if the, in the same way that some players use transportation as a, you know, as a way to reach, to gain scale, to layer on other services, mm-hmm. you can think about Transition's distribution network I mean, in a similar manner. If they have a hundred million plus people who have these devices in hand, use them every day for many things, there's an opportunity for Transition to provide all those services themselves. And again, the power of defaults is very important because... When they buy the transition phones, they have these services bundled already there. And so a consumer looking for, say, a lending app, you know, will find one as or soon as they app. unbox their phone. Exactly. A music streaming app. Or a music app. So like that's um, a significant advantage, which they are, I believe, attempting to parlay into success elsewhere. So they have something that they don't talk a lot about called Palm Pay, which is a payment service. They have Palm Credit. Um, they have some music services and, and, you know, you fully expect them to do many other things, um, um, as they try to increase the value of that bundle. Um, Opera is doing a similar thing with their OPE app. You know, they've launched a ride hailing service called O-Ride in Nigeria. 
Um, I believe they will expand that uh, across the continent uh, in due time. Mm. But you find that, you know, they, they were able to gain dominance or gain at least some brand awareness using their, their browser, which provided actual value to users in one way. And then pilot that into, you know, a news app, into a payment service. And now I believe they are now going to build different use cases within the payments app. Because again, a payment service is not an end in itself. It's a means to accomplish ends. And so... Uh, the way it seems, Opay is going to basically create the use cases that its customers want to do and then basically profit from the entirety of that bundle as opposed to saying, we now enable payments or you can send money from X place to X place, which is maybe valuable, but like not that compelling. It's interesting because the most explicit expression of those aspirations early on I've encountered was from Yego Moto of Rwanda, who up front even in just setting up the entire model, we're very clear, like, we're going to service this government. We're going to figure out what problems they need to solve. I suppose what the pros and problems of what is a huge element of public transportation in Rwanda, what that represents for the government in terms of an economic opportunity, a social problem, a unique opportunity to harvest data, to make better decisions. Yegomoto out of the gates we're like, we're in Rwanda for that reason. That's why we're launching here first. And it seems that's pretty much what the play is for most of the trending startups who are landing investment. And I suppose it remains to be seen whose brand is going to win out over time. From a user perspective, as someone who lives between Nairobi and Lagos, which to me, I think are easily the largest two markets for Okadas or Motos, Boda Boda, certainly. What's the experience like as a user? Is the hype being realized at ground level? Where like me, maybe in South Africa, I've gotten to the point where I can't imagine my life without Uber. So I use motorcycle taxi services pretty extensively um, across you know both cities I, I live and work in. I think about motorcycle taxi services in Lagos as more of a utility, especially when I need to get somewhere fast. So in the article I, I wrote, I pointed out that you know, these services tend to pitch themselves very differently market by market. So in Nigeria, you find lots of the services um, have Go in them, which is supposed to connote speed. So um, Max, when they launched their motorcycle taxi service, they called it Max Go. Um, and you have Gokara. Um, and then in Togo, I believe, you have Goziem or Gozem. In East Africa, I'm seeing safe motors. I'm seeing safe Boda because like pretty much the, the core value proposition in East Africa seems to be safety or organization um, for a, a, a motorcycle taxi industry that seems uh, mired in chaos. As someone who's so, used you know, a, a motor in Kigali, I can tell you that that is uh, exactly the thing. I enjoyed my experience, but um, it did feel hairy. <laughs> yeah, so... so in Lagos, um, I mostly use motorcycle taxis when I need to get to a meeting quickly and I, and I cannot afford to be a victim of Lagos traffic, which is famously like insane. And, you know, I, I've been able to cut down two hour, one hour, 30 minute trips to, to 20 minutes or 15 minutes uh, and basically save my reputation. Um, in, in Nairobi, I find that I use them as more of a default. Except I'm carrying luggage or except I'm going for like an important function or something, I will typically default to taking borders in Nairobi, uh, primarily because the experience feels pretty much the same to using a car um, and significantly cheaper. And I don't know how to haggle. And so I just like get on those things. But one thing that I noticed in uh, in Nairobi is 
the drivers are much more promiscuous. So again, because the business model in East Africa is more demand-driven because it's primarily Uber for motorcycles, you will hail a motorcycle taxi using, say, Uber's app, but they will arrive like wearing a safe body helmet because they're pretty much and like a, a taxify or a boat vest because they are active on all those services. And on the supply side, they're like super promiscuous. In Lagos, I default to one player, which I will not name, primarily because in my residential area, they showed more liquidity. You better so tell me never... off, offline, bro, because I don't want to be stuck in Lagos, bro. <laughs> I, I, will, I will let you know. <laughs> A fascinating deep dive, but uh, we must move on. With the time we have left, I want to take advantage of Babu Sinyoni's presence on the mic with us uh, today to discuss Africa's AI future. Now, I know this is a massive topic and um, there's no way we can do it justice exhaustively. I do hope that we can, you know, get a conversation going that I know we'll want to revisit at a later point. And I can't think of anyone better than you, Babusi, not least because of all the interesting projects you are doing in the space, even as we speak. And then you're just this homegrown talent and you've never, even when you lived abroad, lost touch with the implications of this incredible technology for our continent. So there's a an article by Karen Howe writing for the MIT Technology Review where she claims the future of AI research is in Africa. It's these sort of superlative claims that I can't help rolling my eyes at, even though when you read through the article, you know, she makes a lot of valid points and she's championing our ecosystem and the potential of the African continent as part of this digital trend. But I want us to be more rooted in pragmatic realities. And for that purpose, I'm going to ask you why you've seen it important to work on things like a bot. My sense is in you explaining your hobbies in this space, we might start to have a more pragmatic understanding of what to be excited about. One thing that I learned um, as someone who has no university background and also was not necessarily strong at maths is that what's happening with artificial intelligence right now is that the technology itself has reached this critical point of research fulfillment and, and theoretical explorations that need to be validated. And where we have this lag is between the actual um, research explorations and their implementation. So where the U.S. is more responsible for AI research, we find that there are players like China, for example, which will drive AI implementation at scale at such a ridiculous level and try out these technologies that have already been discovered and make businesses out of them. And why I mention that is because Africa as a continent presents a plethora of problems worth solving. It's a playground that can easily be utilized by people who dabble in artificial intelligence to validate certain ideas and theories and and never mind even validating, at least finding use cases for them. Uh, Towards the end of last year, I built this dance app that uses computer vision to rate uh, this one dance move called Ivojo. 
and um, looking at... Which is dance at, to gom, right? Which is what you Which DJ. is dance to gom, exactly. It's all full circle. Um, <laughs> so so this dance app was accessed on, on multiple devices, like many of them super low end, you know, just like those devices you would buy at Edgar's on checkout on your contract or something. Yeah. Um, Edgar's being so like, a, a clothing retailer in South Africa, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry uh, for the context. Yes. Yeah. Um, so low-end Samsung devices that can just barely, you know, access deeper device features like position tracking and all that. And these people access the dance app, which used a very recent iteration of computer vision. And so it essentially was beating edge technology, but they of course had no business knowing what the technology was. All they wanted to know was what rating will my Vorsho get? And knowing that working with my partner over at Triple Black, which is the agency I founded, we decided to do something more with that tech. And we built this um, app for the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, which is also based on symptomatic observations of one's movement over time. And it's something that we'd learned the Vosha app can do. And that is just one example of a possible millions, many of how a slightly shifted interest in the implementation of AI tech towards Africa can open up a world of applications and and really show the full extent of the technology. So I 100% agree with the sentiments shared by the writer of that article on the future of AI research being in Africa, uh, Karen Howe. It's 100% correct. So who knew that Gom, Babu Sinyoni becoming a DJ, um, <laughs> <laughs> rating the Vosho, and Parkinson's disease would have this golden thread called AI. Yes. So you're inspiring for two reasons. You haven't relied on what the world says someone in your position can do and achieve with a technology like AI in order yeah. to, to make a tangible real world difference or advancement in the space. That's one. Yeah. Number two, you stumbled upon an amazing innovation experimenting with technology. What can everyday people like me and perhaps even people <laughs> less au fait with tech and digital innovation learn from that experience? A big part of my Kenyan leg of the AI for Africa tour, uh, which um, happened in June, was to speak to people who would otherwise be intimidated by uh, these technologies um, to understand that it's not something that is dependent on your background, especially financially or education wise, but is more uh, reliant on your mindset. And also looking at what kind of capital the African continent presents to people who are focused on these kinds of technologies. I mean, looking at recent efforts to move innovation and research hubs by players such as IBM and Google and Samsung to um, actually um, Kenya, you know, it, it should give you an idea of where the world sees the next step in the implementation and, and uh, inherent success of these technologies. And what is required then is for people to set up and take part in, in this, I guess, um, renaissance um, that mm. is being led by artificial intelligence. I didn't go to a fancy high school and that was the last time I was ever in a classroom. And it just having an understanding and a willingness to learn technology and understand that absolutely no one knows what they're doing. Um, so it's okay for you to not know as well and just take your time to learn is all that it takes to be a part. Inspiring stuff. You, you work with the UNHCR in essentially modeling 
refugee movements. Again, that was off the back of work you'd done in your agency role, working for a beer brand. You know, so again, and the reason I raised this and I'd like you to sort of flesh this out a little bit is because maybe our sense is only sort of AI labs or fully sort of VC-backed AI startups are where we should be looking for the next big innovation. And it might well be an extension of something you're working on within the context of not trying to change the world for refugees. That is true. I mean, um, definitely starting to invest a little more in experimentation in Africa is where I would place my bets, especially um, when it comes to the fact that we wouldn't necessarily look at investing time and money into something that doesn't have an immediate financial return. It it will be very unlikely for uh, a VC uh, to back a South African startup that isn't creating any individual product and one that is just solely based on playing with technology and seeing what sticks on the wall. Um, but that's where we need to be at, you know, and that's um, something that I noticed as well as, as as my career took off, that it's it's something that needs attention because no one will invest in it, uh, as I just stated. So it's, it's something that uh, needs a whole lot of self-starting and self-funding and, and um, self-propagation to actually see it across the line. Also, Ruman, during your tenure, you know, within the world of VC, which is, I imagine, a world you may return to at some point, knowing how fluid you are, it wouldn't surprise me Mm -hmm. in the least. Was AI even on the radar as far as things you were looking to invest in or interested in investing in? If not, why not? And if so, why so? Uh, At the time, and even now, I tend to think of AI as a uh, horizontal, not vertical technology. That is, every business at some point in the future, you can assume will implement uh you know some machine learning you can assume and so what's more interesting is you know what use case or the use cases are and how, how compelling they felt not necessarily you know the ai bit of it especially given that i am not in any way an ai expert but there's a company that i found really interesting that i i met uh sometime earlier this year they are called tamboa health so they basically do uh, tuberculosis diagnostics through a mobile phone um, I think they take an audio recording of uh, of people's cough, and then they're able to then use that to diagnose with some degree of accuracy. I hear it's like a voice. Um, it's like a voice bot for coughs. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's it's. It, it, I, I think that's one. Of, that's a really cool use case um, that takes advantage of you know mobile native assumptions. Um, you know that we we take our mobile phones everywhere. The mobile phones are um, very very ubiquitous, and the barrier to getting. Get, delivering these services, to use a cliche term, the next billion, um, I, I find that really, really interesting. Yeah. So there's no doubt we are going to need to plan another session, Babusi, where you join us to make maybe something a little more specific within the space, a marquee topic on the show. Because yeah. I think as far as... I would love to listen to that. Making an argument for why, you know, we should buy into this hype. Not just yeah. because FaceApp is is trending right now face app facebook tomato tomato um but yeah. but really just because you know i think there's also a danger in of exoticizing the notion of what these 
technologies are capable of, who should be involved in driving innovation and who should And that's benefit. the important part. Yeah. yeah. And that's the that that's the the super, super important part. It's who is driving the innovation. Because what artificial intelligence requires on a really vast level is human capital. And the labeling of data is something that is becoming more and more um commercially viable even as a career and what it means for Africa as the holder of what is going to be the world's largest um, workforce in in the next 20 years is it's really important for us to understand these conversations happening around us about us about technologies that we think are not for us because who drives these technologies is who's going to run and basically own each sphere of life that we are in so guys maybe to close this part out did you guys use the face app thing and how good you look at uh, 90 years old? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. I, I bit. Oh, man, I did too. I'm so glad <laughs> I wasn't the only one bubbly. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I didn't publish I, my photo. I, I did you publish yours? I, I know, I feel left out. No, of course not. But also, <laughs> I'm, I'm becoming okay with um, large corporations taking my data. I think the, the sooner I relinquish this need to own bits of myself in the digital sphere, the easier it will be for me to live in the future. Ooh, bubbly. Come on, you can't say that when you know how valuable your data is, surely. <laughs> huh? Oh, trust me, a time will come where we won't have as many options as we have right now. So you think the horse is privacy? I, I think we, I think a time will come when we will care more uh, about privacy and about the use of our data. Consumers mostly don't care right now, but I think they will in the future. And companies in the future that uh, collect uh, as little data as possible will be the most valuable companies. Mm. I understand that might not That's be a popular opinion. That's an interesting perspective. <laughs> and the weird thing is I buy into both your, your views. It's just so confusing for me right now. <laughs> but did, uh, did you use FaceApp also, Ruben? Um, no, I didn't. I, yeah, I just, I just never got around to it. That is so it. disciplined I, of I you. I wouldn't expect any less from you. <laughs> <laughs> You're so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, fellas, I'm going to put it out there. This uh, conversation is going to go places and I'm really honored to have had it with you. I do want to give our listeners another heads up. You want more of these gentlemen? Well, there's more available. Babusi continues to be on tour. As and when his dates become announced, we will definitely be sharing them across our social media platforms. So if you're on Twitter, hit us up at African Roundup on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup, or just head to our website, africantechroundup.com, sign up for our newsletter. We'll give you updates that way as well. And of course, in the show notes of this very episode, we will share all his confirmed dates and where you can go and listen to him as part of Babu Sinyoni, the innovator on his Artificial Intelligence <laughs> for Africa Tour 2019. Also, Ruman, of course, is available to you live in the flesh at Tech Cabal's next town hall on mobility. That's happening in Lagos on September 27th. And then once again, a quick reminder, I'll be available to interact with in the flesh. Look forward to meeting you at Santon Convention Center at LeaderX, which is a conference of conferences. We'll be at the Henley Business School stage, interacting with the one and only Dr. Shingi Munyeza and Alan Reyes. A fireside chat, talking about accelerating Zimbabwean entrepreneurial ventures. Shout out to our friends at African Investment Tours and Zimbabwe Investment Tours. We look forward to seeing you there. Of course, I'll be on stage with Smanga Madlabuta. Shout out to him too. Listen, my heart is full. 
nothing else left to say but to thank you both for being on the show. Babu Sinyoni first. Thank you so much, bruv. Thanks for having me, Andile. Also, Rumen Osamui, thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much. I hope this is the first of many. Hey, I have a feeling. I have a feeling <laughs> in my bones. I have a feeling in my bones. And then, of course, a big thank you to our listening audience. We love that you tune in and prioritize these conversations we have. We love being in your ears. My name is Andile Masugu. Take it easy, Africa. Africa.